0: All right, well, if you would, let's open up in our Bibles to the Gospel of Luke, the Gospel of Luke. And we're going to backtrack a little bit back into chapter one, uh, back into Luke chapter one. Uh, My aim on this Lord's Supper Sunday is simple. I want to help us love Jesus more. Uh, If you're here and you're an unbeliever, I want you to see the kind of Savior that Jesus is, why he's worthy of your trust. And if you're here and you're a Christian, I simply want us to see afresh the glories of Christ. And so as Merle just prayed, um, I'm praying as well, I hope you are, that the Spirit would be at work strengthening faith. Fanning the flames of love in our hearts, causing us to be a more Christ-centered people. And our text for this morning is Luke chapter 1, verse 57. Um, we have this man, Zechariah, who is a priest in Israel. And as we've seen, he and his wife are senior citizens. They're beyond childbearing years. And then the angel Gabriel appears to Zechariah and declares that he and Elizabeth are going to have a son. And this son is going to be filled with the Holy Spirit. The son is going to prepare the way for the coming Messiah. Uh, Zechariah and Elizabeth's son will be known as John the Baptist. Uh, But Zechariah, like Abraham and Sarah so many centuries before, he questioned the angel How shall I know this? For I am an old man, and my wife and I advanced in years. And Gabriel responds, I am Gabriel. I stand in the presence of God, and I was sent to speak to you and to bring you this good news. And behold, you will be silent and unable to speak until the day that these things take place, because you did not believe my words, which will be fulfilled in their time. And so Elizabeth does indeed conceive. And throughout the many months of pregnancy, Zechariah is mute, unable to speak. And as we've seen before, he also was probably unable to hear as well. And then the baby is born. Uh, Go down to verse 57. Now the time came for Elizabeth to give birth, and she bore a son. And her neighbors and relatives heard that the Lord had shown great mercy to her, and they rejoiced with her. And yet even here at the birth of John, Zechariah doesn't suddenly find that he's able to speak. He still cannot hear. It's not until the eighth day when they come to circumcise the child, when they come to give the child the name that he is to have, when everyone is surprised that Elizabeth wants to name him John, when there's nobody in the family named John, and they go to Zechariah expecting him to overrule his wife, to name him Zechariah Jr., and instead, Zechariah writes on the tablet, his name is John, because that is the name that God gave him, the name revealed by the angel. And as soon as Zechariah, in obedience to God, says that is his name, suddenly, after nine months, his, his mouth is opened, his tongue is loosed, and we have this song that we've already studied before that just comes pouring out about praising our God for who He is and what He is doing. The song is mainly about the Messiah and what the Messiah is going to be accomplishing, but it also speaks about John and the role that John will have. I want us to look at verses 68 and 69. We've already studied these verses, but I just wanted to see them, 68 and 69. Blessed be the Lord God of Israel, For he has visited and redeemed his people, and he has raised up a horn of salvation for us in the house of his servant, David. So what do we see in those two verses? We see that God is to be praised. Blessed be the Lord God of Israel. And why is he to be praised? Three verbs. God has visited his people God has redeemed His people. God has raised up a horn of salvation for His people. And we understand that word visited. God has come in the person of Jesus Christ and He has come to to see His own. Indeed, to check in on His own. But to do more than that, to care for them in their plight. Through Jesus Christ, He redeems them. Uh, Remember, like prophecies, though these things had yet to happen in Zechariah's day, he speaks of them in the past tense because their happening was certain and guaranteed. The part that we did not get to talk about in the song and that I want us to focus on this morning is that part where it says that God has raised up a horn of salvation. Because that's not words we use very much does that even mean? God has raised up a horn of salvation. That language is somewhat foreign to us, and yet the Bible uses the word horn almost a hundred times. It turns out it's actually a pretty important word in the scriptures. This is not a rare, obscure, isolated picture being used here. Rather, the picture of God as a horn or God raising up a horn is used throughout the Bible. Zechariah is simply drawing on an Old Testament idea when he speaks here. Now, sometimes in the scriptures, the word is used of horns on animals, So you remember when Abraham was about to sacrifice his son, Isaac, in obedience to God's command. And we read that Abraham lifted up his eyes and looked and behold, behind him was a ram caught in a thicket by his horns. And that's the first time we encounter horns in the Bible And that ram became the substitute for Isaac and was offered up to God in Isaac's place. More often, this word is used of horns on bigger animals and stronger animals. So, for example, David says in Psalm 22, You have rescued me from the horns of the wild oxen. Uh, David had been a shepherd, and it is very possible that God had literally rescued him from the horns of a wild ox at some point in his life. In fact, the Old Testament uses wild oxen all the time as a picture of power and strength as well as danger and trouble. Uh, These wild oxen could gore people to death with their horns. But horns also became important in Israel's worship. Uh, God commanded that his altars be constructed with horns on them. Uh, Exodus 27 verse 2, "You shall make horns on the four corners of the altar. Its horn shall be of one piece with it; you shall overlay it with bronze." Now, it's not hard to see why when God commanded his altars to be made, he commanded that they have horns on them. When animals were placed on an altar to be sacrificed, they would buck and kick and twist and turn and try and get away. And so the horns could be used as posts on which to tie down the animal that was about to be sacrificed. And that's how those horns were used. Sometimes this word is used of animal horns used as musical instruments. A classic example is Joshua 6. The ram's horns that the people of Israel used as they marched around the walls of Jericho. Um, However, predominantly, this idea of a horn, this word horn, is used in the Old Testament and again by Zechariah as a symbol of power. A symbol of power. Just as a warrior might have his sword... So the most powerful beast had their horns, and these were their weapons of war. Uh, 1 Samuel 2, verse 10 The Lord will judge the ends of the earth. He will give strength to his king. He will exalt the horn of his anointed. It was like saying, May his sword be powerful. May his right hand be strong. May his horn be exalted. Uh, Because animal horns were seen as a picture of strength and power, they were often used in anointing kings. And so when Samuel comes to anoint David to be king over Israel, he pours oil from a horn. And horns are used of powerful men in general. And so kings and rulers are often depicted as horns. We saw that as Pastor Murrow led us through some of those strange visions in Daniel. And we see that idea repeated in Revelation. uh, This idea of powerful men pictured as horns. Psalm 75 is actually all about horns. Uh, Psalm 75, verse 4, I say to the boastful, do not boast. And to the wicked, do not lift up your horn. Verse 5, do not lift up your horn on high or speak with haughty neck. Verse 10, all the horns of the wicked I will cut off, but the horns of the righteous shall be lifted up. What does that mean? It means I will crush the power of the wicked. I will take away their strength and I will exalt the might. Of the righteous, and then this word is also used of God Himself. Uh, Numbers twenty-four, verse eight: God brings him out of Egypt and is for him like the horns of the wild ox. He shall eat up the nations, his adversaries, and shall break their bones in pieces and pierce them through with arrows. You get the picture. It's it's God is like a wild ox. And with his horn, with his strength, with his power, he defeats all the enemies of his people. Now, Herman, that is the picture that is coming to fruition in the Lord Jesus Christ in the days of Zechariah. This is what Zechariah means in this prophecy this morning. He is saying Jesus Christ is a saving horn. Jesus Christ is the power of God, the mighty right hand of God, the one who will vanquish every foe that we as his people will be saved and delivered. Uh, It's a word of battle. It's a word of might. It's a word of war. Jesus Christ is our conquering king, and he saves us through the victory that he accomplishes. And so here is a picture of salvation that you may have never considered. It's the picture of God as a wild ox and Christ as his horn. And with his horn, he fatally destroys all of your enemies that you will be saved. And so let's take a moment and let's think about the enemies that God vanquishes for you. Through the horn of Jesus Christ, the horn of your salvation. And as we do, let's rejoice in the sweet salvation that we have. So first, God vanquishes Satan through the horn of Christ Jesus. Uh, Satan is a real being, a demonic spirit. He is not divine like God. He is a creature Satan was created like the other angels. Satan is not omnipresent. He's not everywhere. Satan is not omniscient. He doesn't know everything. We need to be careful of giving the devil too much credit. He is a limited being. Nevertheless, Satan is powerful. As Gabriel or Michael are powerful in their service as angels of God. So Satan is powerful in his designs of rebellion against God. We see Satan at work in the Garden of Eden, tempting Eve, uh, bringing sin into the world with all of its terrible consequences. All of the misery, sadness, sorrow, depression, suicide, tragedy, human darkness of this world goes back to the scheme of Satan in the Garden. Satan was at work at the cross. It's not typical for Satan himself to possess a person. But we're told that actually Satan himself came into Judas in those last hours. That when Judas betrayed the Lord Jesus with a kiss, it was after Satan had come in and possessed him. Have you ever thought about that? It was not just Judas that kissed the Lord Jesus as he betrayed him. Satan himself in Judas, who kissed the Lord Jesus as he betrayed him. And once Satan left Judas, Judas was left in such despair that he went out and killed himself. Satan and his demons seek to do us harm. We are not their main enemies. Satan hates you for God's sake. Satan hates you because he hates God and God cares about you. It is Satan, it is God that is the main enemy of Satan. But because we are gods, because we belong to him, because we stand as trophies of God's grace, testaments to the glory of the mercy of God, Satan wants to use us and abuse us and destroy us. Satan wants the children of God to dishonor God, to turn against their God, to spit on the face of his grace, to live in wickedness. And Satan is wily... And sly and deceptive, the very father of lies. 1 Peter 5, verse 8: be sober-minded, be watchful. Your adversary, the devil, prowls around like a roaring lion seeking someone to devour. Satan is the great accuser. It is He who through his minions tempts you to sin so that the moment you sin, he can then turn around and accuse you and use the law of God against you. It is Satan who says to God, see, you must condemn this person. Your own holiness demands that you condemn this person. Even though you've set your love on this person, your own law demands that that person be cast into hell. But of course, it was our Lord Jesus Christ, the horn of salvation, who has robbed Satan of his argument. No longer can Satan justly make that accusation since all of our sins were laid on Christ. Way back in the garden, God spoke to the serpent and God promised that one would come who would crush his head at the cross. As Jesus bore the wrath of God for sinners, Satan's great scheme was forever destroyed. And today, as the gospel is going to the nations, Satan's ability to keep people in darkness is being defeated. Satan is now bound in his ability to blind the world. More and more people from every tongue, tribe, and nation are being saved as trophies of God's grace. There is more believers on planet earth today than there's ever been in the history of the world. The church of Jesus Christ has never been stronger or more widespread than it is in this day. Christ will take that spirit, Satan, and on the last day Christ will cast him into the horrors of hell. Satan will not rule in hell. Satan will not be at home in hell. Hell was created by God as the proper place of torment for Satan and his demons. The power and the justice and the holiness of God will be seen for all eternity as the twisted, pathetic, puny, disgusting creature called Satan is punished there forever. His punishment will be the clearest statement of God's holy hatred of all that is wicked and evil. How did God vanquish your foe, the devil? Through the horn of your salvation, the Lord Jesus Christ. Well, then second, God vanquishes our flesh through the horn of Christ Jesus. You see, as powerful as the devil is, He isn't your most constant foe. Your most constant foe, your your enemy who is with you all the time, is your own fallen nature. You can't get away from it. You were born with it, and even when you've been born again, it continues to pull you into sin. If you're not a Christian, this fallen nature is all you've ever known. Your flesh is what you live in each and every day. It is who you are. For believers, our hearts have been made new. We are, behold, new creations in Christ. But there is still something of that old man within us. There is still that flesh wanting to dethrone God and put ourselves back at the center of our lives. Christ has already dealt the fatal blow to our flesh as Christians. The moment the Holy Spirit came inside of you, And caused you to be born again. The seed of holiness was planted in your soul. And the seed of holiness is growing. And it's slowly making its way into more and more of your thoughts and your attitudes, your words and your deeds. And on the last day, Christ will cause the growth of that seed to be amplified. Holiness will so fill your soul that every ungodly thought, every ungodly word, every ungodly deed will be forever driven out of you. Heaven will be heaven in part because there will no longer be anything fallen in you anymore. The old man will be forever gone. The old man will be forever dead. You will be you in holiness and never again you in wickedness. Are you looking forward to that day? Do you long for that day? That foe, your flesh... Defeated, How? Through the horn of Christ Jesus. Well, third, God vanquishes your enemy, the world, through the horn of Christ Jesus. Now, by the world, I simply mean that system of ungodly practices and ungodly ideas that pervades the world we live in. Ever since sin came into the world, it's been saturated with man-centered, prideful, lust-feeding, greedy, ungodly practices. And this is the water we swim in. This is the air we breathe. But when Christ returns, He will bring an end to this world. This world will be condemned in fire and consumed in fire and then made new. We will live in a new heavens, and a new earth, where the air we breathe, the the waters we swim in, will be fully God-centered with purity and holiness and righteousness and justice, filling everything. All will be love. All will be kindness. All will be righteousness. No longer will we speak of the world as a bad thing, because the world will be heaven itself. Fourth, God vanquishes our condemnation through the horn of Christ Jesus. There is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. Uh, Friend, let me just ask you, do do you know your sins this morning? Do, Do you see the countless ways you have transgressed the law of God? This God is all good, This God is worthy of your absolute obedience. And you were born with a corrupt heart. A twisted heart. And your desires have not been aligned with what is good and right. What seems good and right to the natural fallen man is all askew. We find ourselves telling lies, being selfish, having thoughts we'd be ashamed for others to know. We find ourselves losing our tempers with people we care about, being cold towards strangers for no reason. They've done us no wrong at all. We treat others as if they don't matter. Do you know your sin? In the courtroom of heaven, there is no doubt about what we deserve. There is no question about our criminality. The laws are clear that we've broken the laws is equally clear. Our transgressions are numerous, and they were not committed unwillingly. The same sins that we decry in others, we find that we've committed ourselves. God will condemn us by our own words. God will condemn us by our own pointed fingers at other people. Because we are guilty of the very same things. We all deserve hell. It was created as a punishment for Satan, and we've all followed Satan. We've followed His path. By our sin, we've made ourselves rebels against God. John 3 says that we're condemned already and that soon the sentence of eternal spiritual death will be carried out. That's who we are as fallen people. And of course, the great question, the greatest and most important question, is who or what can possibly save us from that fate? Who can rescue us from the just, righteous, deserved, holy condemnation of God? And the answer is, only God himself can save us from God. He must do so in a way that continues to uphold his righteousness. And that's what Christ has done. Jesus Christ came to earth to be our federal head, our representative, if we believe on him. And he represented his people in his perfect life. And he represented his people in his substitutionary death. And he represented his people when he got up from the dead. He went to the cross as the representative of all who would believe on him, bearing the guilt of their sins, bearing the very wrath of God that we deserve upon his human soul. The good news of the gospel is that Jesus Christ came to save sinners. And as we start 2019, is there really any other theme we should make sure is clear? What is what is a church to be? But the pillar and buttress of the truth. And what is the truth that matters above all other truths? What is the light that we are to shine? What does it mean to be a missionary Baptist church? It means that this message is preeminent among us. Jesus Christ came to save sinners. Jesus Christ came and died that we who were hell bound can now be heaven bound. Through Jesus Christ, we were reconciled to God. We are given peace with God. We are made the children of God. The almighty power of God that was once against us. The strength of God that was once opposed to us. The strength of God that was going to come down upon us like a flood of his wrath is now turned. And is used for our good. Is used for our sake. Is working all for our exaltation on the last day. God is for us, who can be against us. If you have believed on Jesus Christ, you have every reason in the world to rejoice. If you have believed on Jesus Christ, you have every reason to break out in dancing. Do not grow. Still or calloused to what Jesus has done for you, to what your God has done for you, He has raised up a horn of salvation. And your condemnation is no more. Fifth, finally, or maybe finally, we'll see, God vanquishes death through the horn of Christ Jesus. See, our Lord Jesus did not remain dead. Three days he was in the tomb. On the third day he rose again. And when he did, death itself was forever defeated. Death cannot hold us any longer. Our bodies will die just as Christ's body died. But our bodies will also rise glorified just as his did. The wages of sin is death. But the wages that were owed have now all been paid. Death has no claim on us any longer. Mount Hermon. Do you see how your foes are falling one by one through the horn, Jesus Christ? Satan defeated. Your flesh defeated. The world defeated. The condemnation you deserve defeated. Death itself defeated. Our God is a wild ox, and with his horn, he is goring this enemy and he's goring that enemy. Why? That you would be delivered, that you will be saved. This will be the last one. Sixth and finally, God has vanquished the greatest foe of all through the horn of Christ Jesus. Because the greatest foe of all is sin itself. What makes Satan Satan is that he's full of sin. What makes your fallen nature so vile is that it's full of sin. What makes this world and its patterns so wicked is that it's sinful. Why do you need to be saved from condemnation? Because you've sinned. Why does death exist and need to be defeated? Because of sin. Christ dealt the fatal blow to all of those enemies at the cross. And when he returns, the war will come to its end. And sin itself will be utterly and forever defeated. Never to rear its ugly head again. But, because sin did rear its ugly head, and because of Satan... And because of your flesh and because of the world and because of your condemnation and because of death. We love God more than we ever could have in a world where those things had never existed. We would never have known God as a God of grace or mercy had those things not been. And even when those things are long gone. Even when those things are a distant memory, for all eternity we will look back and we will remember and we will sing the praises of the God who defeated these enemies and rescued us by his grace. And we will sing forever of how God raised up for us a horn of salvation. So, as we come to the table this morning, it's the Lord's table, he is the host. We do what we do here because Jesus commanded us to do this. this. This tiny little table right here is meant to be a tiny little picture of the great table in heaven of the great wedding feast. And this tiny little piece of unleavened bread and that just enough juice to make your throat a little bit wet and want more. All of that is meant to do what? To say this is the appetizer for the day when we will be with the one and celebrate with the one who is the horn of our salvation. If you're here this morning and you're an unbeliever, you need to understand that taking the Lord's Supper is a profession of faith in Jesus Christ. It's a way we say to one another. It's a way we say before God. It's a way that we say to the angels in heaven and to anyone else who wants to see that our hope is in Jesus Christ alone. He is our Savior. He is the one in whom we rest. If that's not true for you, don't take the Lord's Supper. Don't profess what's not true of you. Uh, Really, the Lord's Supper should be for those who are in good standing in a local church where not only themselves but a church around them can profess, yes, this person knows the Lord Jesus Christ. But if you are a Christian, you ought to be able to take the bread and the cup and celebrate. It's a reverent moment, it's a serious moment, but it is a joyful moment. This is a pledge. And the pastors and the deacons, we're just the servants of Jesus. Pretend that it's not pretend you are receiving the bread and the cup as though from the hand of Christ himself. And he is saying to you, keep trusting me a little bit longer and you will be with me at the great wedding feast. I ask the deacons to come and to help me as we take the.